Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Uh, as you're turning there, let me, let me pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your mercy and your kindness to us. Lord, already this morning, <clears throat> Lord, the gospel has been presented through, uh, through the sung word, through the word read this morning, what Christ said there in the temple. Uh, Lord, I, there's been enough for us to go ahead and repent already, so Father, I pray that you would uh, press upon us this morning, you would dig your grace deep into the trenches of our hearts, Lord, that we would see that uh, we have a sure word from our Lord. Lord, we need you, you to work. Lord, if, if you uh, will not build the church, Lord, it will not be built. So, Father, we, we, we throw ourselves on the mercy and on your grace and on the promise that you will do this thing. Pray you help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 12. Our text this morning is uh, shorter than last week, but shorter than next week's as well. So, Mark chapter 12, look at it with me, verse 35. And Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. You were here last week, or if you're familiar with Mark chapter 12, you know this is coming after a series of moments where the religious leaders have peppered Christ with all the questions that they can imagine. Uh, however, these uh, Pharisees, these religious elite, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the, uh, all of these folks who are approaching Christ did not approach him with faith-seeking understanding. Rather, as it says in the text, they approached him as a means to try to trap him. They're trying to trip them up. They're trying to get them on the scriptures, thereby realizing and showing that they don't understand the scriptures themselves. And at the end of our last section, there in verse 34, uh, what they say is says that there remain no more questions for him. But now, Jesus has a question of his own. This is the point where all other questions have stopped. And Jesus flips the script, and he asks them a question. This is a question which would settle the debate. You'll notice that our text does not give us an answer, which should cause us to think, to consider what is going on here. What is Jesus actually asking? And here's it. I'll give it to you up front, and you can kind of track it along as we go. The central issue in the text this morning is, who is the Christ? Who is the, the coming one? Who is the Messiah? That's the question. It's a question that Jesus asked there in the temple a few days before they would string him up and kill him. It's the question that's posed to you this morning. Who is the Christ? But what's interesting is here, we'll notice at the end of the section this morning is the people are actually glad to hear it. Right, this is interesting because what's just taken place, right? We've had this parade of questions by Jesus where he is progressively upsetting them more and more and more. Now, who's in charge of the temple? The religious elite, right? The Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, like these are the folks to the Sanhedrin. These are the folks who are in charge of the temple. But what we have is Jesus teaching in the temple. Notice verse 35, as Jesus 
taught in the temple. This is important, right? And after next week will be the last sermon, the last section where we're in the temple, and then the scene moves in the Gospel of Mark to outside the temple, and they kind of look back and be like, ah, isn't that a beautiful temple? We'll get into that in a couple weeks. But, but it's interesting that Jesus is teaching the people in the temple. They actually are enjoying what they're hearing. Now, this is interesting because the religious leaders are still here. As a matter of fact, they don't, they don't like it. You see, if we're not careful, we'll miss the underlying tensions that are swimming underneath the current here. The point is that the crowd is leading the leaders at this point. It's a fascinating interaction throughout the Gospel of Mark. You have the crowd, you have the leaders, you have Jesus, uh, and all of these kind of play off of each other, right, throughout the Gospel of Mark. Now later, uh, the next time Jesus interacts with the crowds, he's been arrested in the night, he's been brought before, and then the people are beginning to wonder, is this really the Messiah? Is this the coming one? Because what's important here is when Jesus asks this question, the implied answer that he is the Christ. He is the coming Messiah. He is the Savior for all mankind. And yet the crowd enjoys that in this moment. But when they see him brought before Pontius Pilate, when they see him brought before the Sanhedrin, they think, well, this can't be the Messiah. This can't be the coming one. What Christ is doing here is he's beginning to hone in on their preconceived understandings of who the Messiah actually is. The question of the text, the question of this morning is, who is the Christ? What is his identity? Look at verse 35 that Jesus taught in the temple. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now notice here, Jesus is saying that the scribes have been teaching the folks in the temple primarily that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David. That he is the coming son. Now, we need to understand, well, where did this promise come from? Because there was a promise of a Messiah. God had promised to David that he will have an eternal kingdom. 2 Samuel 7, 16 says, And your house, God talking to David, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Psalm 89 picks this verse up and repeats it. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Now what's interesting about Psalm 89, which repeats, simply echoes what was promised there in 2 Samuel chapter 7, is the reason the psalmist in chapter 89 quotes that text is because this is the reason why the people of God should be singing of the steadfast love of the Lord. That, that psalm opens up with simply praising the Lord. And then it says, because. He has promised to establish his kingdom from David. Isaiah picks up on this coming kingdom in Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And a little later it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is the important part. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So when you read the Old Testament promises, what you should pick up on is the fact that God seems to make these massive, 
all-encompassing promises undeveloped. We shouldn't think of the promise given in 2 Samuel to be how God's going to do it. He simply says, I will do it. He does it throughout, right? He promises Abraham to make him uh, a a blessing to all the nations without actually telling him how he's going to do it. So what happens is what, what we believe in Christianity, that you believe this if you're a Christian and maybe you haven't known this, we believe in what's called progressive revelation. Progressive revelation, which is simply like God didn't say exactly how he's going to do it from the beginning. So, 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 for example, we know more about God's plan today than Abraham did. You see, that's, that's the progression of God's promises. We know more today than, than David did. This is the progression of God, right? So when you think about the promises that God has given in the Old Testament, we should think of them uh, instead of a fully developed with crystal clarity of all the minutia and all the details of the promises as they will be fulfilled. We should think of them rather as a basic sketch and an outline of a picture that is nearly in black and white. But then as the scriptures progress, we see more details added into this picture, more colors are incorporated shadows appear shades and hues appears so that we can clearly see that the promise actually fully is complete isaiah 11 says there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the lord He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And a little later it says, The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover See Now notice what Isaiah is doing here. He's, he's filling out the picture. He's simply coloring in between the lines. He's, he's, he's letting us see with crystal clarity what exactly this promise will look like. This promise of a king who would come. He would reign forever. And as I, Isaiah adds all these colors and all these hues about judging the, with righteousness and deciding with equity and coming judgment against the wicked. But all of it is encapsulated within the promise given in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The promise given to David of his eternal rule. Jeremiah comes along. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness the lord declares that he will raise up david for this righteous branch who will reign as king and deal wisely and then later in jeremiah it says but they shall serve the lord their god and king and david their king whom i will raise up for them we see jeremiah saying that they will serve not only god but but david their king who is the one who will be raised up ezekiel comes along and he says i will set up them over one shepherd my servant david who shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. I, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I and the Lord, I have spoken. So you see, Jesus 
And under, to, in order to understand exactly what Jesus is implying by his question, we need to understand what he means by what the scribes say that, uh, that, that the son, the Messiah is the son of David, right? That's all the argument hinges on these two points. Hosea 3, 5, Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come and fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Amos 9, 11, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. See, the, the Messiah, the Christ. Like, this is a helpful hint as you're reading the New Testament scriptures. Anytime you read Jesus Christ, simply replace Christ with the Messiah. That'll help you connect what Jesus is doing in the New Testament with the Old Testament because Christ just simply means the anointed one, the Messiah. It's the, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. The Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God would be a human descendant of David. On this, everyone agreed. So it was this promise that was given. But there was also the promise misinterpreted. Jesus' point in asking the question in this way is to battle their misunderstanding because they believe the Messiah would be just a man, just a son of David. Look what he does. He quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What's Jesus doing here? He's trying to get them to recognize from the scriptures where they have misinterpreted the promise. And this isn't new in Mark's gospel. One of the main themes throughout Mark is Jesus continually battling against how they've interpreted the Old Testament scriptures. Two things primarily here. Number one, they they didn't quite understand what exactly the Messiah would be doing. Right? They ignored whole passages of the Old Testament, like Isaiah 53, which talk about the Messiah, the, the coming one, who would suffer. Number two, they had misconception of what exactly this person would look like. Who would they actually be? So they've missed both the mission of the Messiah and the person of the Messiah. Right? We can see this play out throughout Mark's Gospel. One example right, is when Peter, he recognizes who Jesus, Jesus asks, who do men say that I am? And he says, some say all these folks. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? What's, Jesus, what's Peter's response? Well, you are the Messiah. And we say, amen, brother, you get it. And then what happens? Jesus says, yeah, that's right, I am the Messiah, and they're going to kill me. And Peter says, not on my watch. And what's Jesus saying? Get behind me. You, you, you don't understand, right? You see, what, what Peter had done in that moment is he, he had recognized the person of the Messiah, but he had missed the mission of the Messiah. It misinterpreted the promise. What they were doing, what the Pharisees are doing here in the temple, what the, the religious elite, they were elevating the means of the Messiah, the, how he would accomplish his mission, the means of the Messiah. They were elevating it, saying, we don't need all this suffering. We simply need someone to come in and rule with an iron fist. We need somebody to take over, to throw these Romans up out of here. Elevated the means of the Messiah while decreasing the person of the Messiah. See, Jesus is kicking against the Jewish traditions, which had elements of biblical truth in it, but were not fully biblical. He does this multiple times throughout the Gospel of Mark. Actually, to read the Gospel of Mark and miss this is to kind of miss exactly what all Mark's trying to actually accomplish in writing this. So here's the application for us from that. The scribes' false beliefs about the Messiah were so ingrained in them that when they heard the truth of the Messiah, it actually became offensive to them. 
Their false beliefs about the Messiah were so ingrained in them that when they heard the truth of the Messiah, it became an offense to them. This should cause us to stop and think about our own traditions. What is so ingrained in us that if we were to hear truth, it would actually become offensive to us? The way we do ministry, the order of our services here on Sunday morning, the number of services we have, whether or not we have Baptists in the church name, which, by the way, I'm not sure if you're tied into these kind of conversations that are happening. And there's a whole movement in Baptist denomination that said, well, take Baptist out of the name, you're probably not a real church, right? There's this whole just ludicrous stuff, right? That the types of music that we sing, whether or not we should have drums in the church, right? All of these are coming from tradition. Not necessarily from the scriptures. Now, I want to say this, because some of you younger folks are like, yeah, that's right, pastors, tell them. We're changing the name, we're playing drums, we're playing loud music, we don't care. Can't tell us about Listen, here's what I'm not saying. Like, you're not a mature, more mature Christian if you simply have no tradition. Rather, a, a mature Christian is someone who sees the traditions that they have, but realize that they are not on the same level of the scriptures. All right, so traditions in and of themselves are not bad. They're only bad in, in so much as they no longer accord with the scriptures. When you teach your traditions as the commands of God, then you have made a grave mistake. Right? This is what uh, Jesus' complaint against the Pharisees were. He says, like, you, you're laying a burden about these people that they cannot carry and that you would not even lift a finger to carry as well. So what is it in us? What is it, especially folks who have been in the church their whole lives, what is it that is in you that would say, well, you know, if we did that, if we, if we played that music, or we did that thing, or we said that thing, what is, we're no longer a church. Right, because here's the thing, especially for folks, and this is something I've been wrestling with a lot, because I didn't grow up in the church. Like, if you know me, you know that. It wasn't until later in my high school years that I came to faith in Christ. Uh, and I always wore that as kind of a badge of honor against all the folks, right, because I was very immature as a Christian. Like, let's just burn this whole place down and start over. It's a bad idea. It's actually a sign of immaturity in the believer. But I always wear it as a badge of honor because I didn't, I was like, I'm a skeptic by heart, skeptic by nature. I don't trust any of this nonsense. But as I've kind of grown in my faith, what I realize now is I don't want that for my children. I actually, I actually want my children to grow up in the church. I want them to be indoctrinated. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Like, we want to teach our kids the, the, the faith, right? We want them to understand the gospel. We want their hearts to be changed by the gospel. But yes, we want to indoctrinate our kids. And so all traditions are not bad. But the problem is that if we spend too much time in church, what we then begin to do, this is the natural bent of the human heart, is to begin to equate the things and the way in which we live out the commandments of God as themselves the commandments of God. And so we must be careful. And the thing is, like, we need to be honest and sober about how we approach all of life to actually understand whether or not we're doing this. This is why it's so important to actually be in a church, by the way. Because if you're not in a community of faith and folks who can point out sin in your life, then you'll miss it all the way along. 
But notice Jesus' answer. He phrases the question in a weird way that isn't quite clear. Look at verse 36. David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand and put your enemies under your feet. Until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So, now, so how is he his son? Notice Jesus' argument here. He started with the common ground of, We all know this to be true. The scribes have taught it. That, that David, the son of David, will be the Messiah. And then he says that David calls him Lord, which then leads to Jesus' question, how is he his son? How is the Messiah David's son? Or in what sense is the Messiah David's son? It's important to understand what Jesus is, is and isn't saying here. You see, Jesus isn't denying the sonship of the Messiah. He isn't denying that he is coming from the line of David. Right? Flip back to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Earlier on in Mark, Jesus actually accepts this title of son of David when blind Bartimaeus calls out for him. Look at verse 47 in chapter 10. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what's Jesus say to him? What, what do you want me to do for you? And Jesus heals him. And, and what does he say? He says, your faith has made you well. To which the question we should then all ask is, faith in what? Where was blind Bartimaeus' faith? What faith is Jesus talking about here? What did he see in this blind beggar? You see, Mark's entire point of adding this to the storyline is so that you, the reader, might see what Jesus saw. That in declaring that Jesus is the son of David, we are, in fact, declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. Then in chapter 11, right, how does Jesus enter into Jerusalem? Look at chapter 11, verse 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of what? Of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Right? This is all designed by Jesus on purpose. So Jesus isn't saying, right, he's not pitting the scribes against uh, Psalm 110, right? He's simply saying, he's pointing out to them that, yeah, 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 your understanding as the Messiah, as a son of David is right and it's good and it's beautiful, but it's not enough. He is saying, I am more than the son of David. You see, Jesus will not allow the scribes to have a limited view of who he really is. He is the son of David. That is true, but he is also much, much more. He is fixing the messianic thinking of these Jewish people. So what then is he implying, right? What is he implying by using Psalm 110? He's implying the promise of Emmanuel. You see, he's building the case that the promise has always been the promise of Emmanuel, of God with us. He's implying that he himself is God. Look what it says. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. By using Lord, Jesus is saying he is more than just the son of David. Now this is a huge deal in and of itself. Right, so, so like, this would be kind of akin to, uh, like, like if, 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 here in the West, if, if you have a business, and your son is uh, coming up through the business, through the family business, but then your, your son becomes your boss, it's kind of weird, isn't it? But it's not like, okay, it's weird for sure, but, but in the Jewish culture, that would have, have been unthinkable. Right? To, to, because to call someone Lord is to imply a superiority and a, and a rulership over. 
So this is a huge deal. Not only that, he is saying that the scriptures have actually said this has been the promise the entire time. He is saying that he is the greater David. He is saying that he is greater than David by saying that he is divine. He is God in the flesh. You see, this passage in Mark is proving out that Christ is actually God. But he hasn't been doing this. This isn't just like a random occurrence in the Gospel of Mark. Like, flip over to the beginning of Mark, Mark chapter 1. In the context of Mark, what Mark is using here and in, in putting this story after, at the, right before the end of the temple teachings is he's, he's, he's building out the full deity of Christ. And he's been doing this the whole time. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he opens up with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, Mark from the beginning wants you as the reader to see Jesus as the Messiah as the Son of God. And then he quotes Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Look at verse 2 there in, in Mark 1. As it is written on Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. But here's what Isaiah 40, verse 3 actually says. It says, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So Isaiah, in the context of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, what Isaiah is arguing for is he's saying that when the Messiah comes, it will be the Lord. He's saying that the Lord will come. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. But in the Gospel of Mark, who is it that comes? Look at verse 4. John appears. Baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, in Isaiah, there was a voice crying out that God was coming. And in Mark, we have John crying out in the wilderness. You see, what Mark's point in all of that is that Jesus is the coming of Yahweh. That God is coming. That's not the only point we see Jesus' uh, lordship here in the Gospel of Mark. We see it at the very beginning. We also see it in chapter 5. Flip over there. You see, in the story of Jesus healing the uh, demoniac, this demoniac, after he was healed, wanted to go with Jesus. The text says that he begged to go with Jesus. And then Jesus says in verse 19, And he did not permit him, but said to him, Jesus talking to the, uh, the demon-possessed man, Go home to your friends. Now watch this. This is important. If you don't read this closely, you'll miss it. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So Jesus just told the demon act, uh, the, demon, uh, the demon possessed man, to go home, tell him what the Lord has done to you. Then what's the man do? Look at the very next verse, verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim the Decapolis, in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You see, the whole time Mark is building out and writing his gospel, he told you at the very beginning, this is the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the, the Son of God. And then he's, you have this demon-possessed man who realizes, that, yeah, 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 uh, the, you know, Jesus told me to tell everyone what the Lord did for me. Let me tell you what Jesus did for me. You see what Mark's doing. Not only that, this might be one of my favorite aspects. Flip over to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, Jesus is going to go up onto the mountain to pray. He sends his disciples in a boat across 
the waters, the storm arises. In verse 48, we'll pick it up. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. Verse 48. For the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when, he, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Here we have Jesus walking on the water. Now, if all we said about this passage, if, I, if we go back to the sermon I preached uh, a couple months ago, this might have been all I said on the passage, that it's simply Jesus having uh, rule over the natural world, we would be accurate in saying that. But there's an allusion here to the book of Job. The book of Job. You see, in Job chapter 9, verse 8, he's saying all the things God has done. This is one of the things that he says. It says, Who alone stretched out the heavens, listen, and trampled the waves of the sea. King James Version translates that as treadeth upon the waves of the sea. NIV treads on. Uh, the New Living Translation actually says that, that God alone marches on the waves of the sea. But, but notice in Job, uh, he, he says later that, but, but, but he passed by. I couldn't see him. I couldn't call out to him. I couldn't get him to come near. What are we going to do about it? Like, that's Job's predicament in chapter 9. But notice in Mark's gospel, it is Jesus meant to pass by. See, Jesus meant to pass by. It's Jesus who is walking on the water and says he meant to pass by them, but he turns and comes to them. In Job, we have a God. We have God who is far away and in Mark, we have God who is with us. You see, the context of Mark as a whole is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. But let's kind of dive back. Flip over to Psalm 110. Let's actually go to the source. You see, Psalm 10 is one of the New Testament author's favorite uh, psalms. A quote quoted or alluded to at least 33 times in the New Testament. It's a favorite of the early church. So let's kind of let's examine this promise. Because all of this argument hinges on kind of one word that Jesus interprets. But it's helpful for us to kind of have the context of the Psalm 10 in its entirety. So let's quickly kind of walk through this. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now if you have an English translation of the scriptures, what you should notice in Psalm 110 is that the, the Lord, the Lord, the, the second word, the Lord, is in all caps. This is how our English Bibles put before us uh, the Jewish, uh, the Hebrew word for Yahweh. This is God proper. This is, uh, they didn't want to speak his name. It's all understanding, like, how do you actually say it? Because in the, in the Hebrew, they didn't actually have the vowels, and they didn't have the vowel markers. So, anyway, this is the Lord, right? This is God, the creator God. But notice the second Lord there. It's the Lord says to my Lord, all kind of lowercase there. That's, that's an indication that there's a different Hebrew word there. The Hebrew word there is Adonai. But here's what's important to understand about this. Is when, when reading the text, they wouldn't actually say Yahweh. They thought it was irreverent. They thought it was uh, unholy. They thought it was almost blasphemous to actually say Yahweh. So when they would read, uh, whenever they would come across Yahweh in the text, what they would actually say is Adonai. And this is massively important because in the Aramaic and Greek world, what they would have said when they read this out loud, when they read Jesus quoting this out loud, they would have said, Adonai said to my Adonai. 
massively important because what you see is this blurring of the lines between Jesus and God. That's Mark's point. Verse 2 of Psalm 110, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. We have imagery here that kind of gets picked up. You see in, in verse 2 there it says the mighty scepter that comes from Zion. Uh, this is not only David's heir. Rather, what's being happen- what's happening here is this heir, this, uh, this, heir, this coming one who, who will rule this mighty scepter is imagery from the end of Genesis, or the end of the Torah, where it says that the, the scepter will not depart from the house of Judah. You see this promise is being carried forward. We also have right at the end of verse 2 there, the rule in the midst of your enemies. This is, uh, this is just the idea that uh, while the Messiah is ruling, while this coming one, this coming Lord is ruling, like there will be those who try to stop him, but they can't. That's what it means when you rule in the midst of your enemies. You also have the people will offer themselves freely on your day of power there in verse 3. This is, uh, this is speaking of you and I. This is speaking to all followers of God. It says, your people, that is, those who follow you, will offer themselves freely. This is followers of Christ. Notice what it says, that his people will offer themselves freely. You see, you and I do not do service to God begrudgingly. This is what the text says. It says they give themselves freely. Like freely. They, like they give to the Lord. They're, they're following the Lord. They're, their volunteer is free. Glad submission to the Lord. So if you're serving and you're doing things that you, like, you don't want to do, like you actually can't stand to do them, it's time to probably check your heart that maybe something is wrong because we get the idea of ministry as free volunteer. This is what the scriptures say. Uh, it also talks about holy garments there in verse 3. This is just a picture of us in Christ's holiness. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek, we briefly touched on when we preached through Genesis. Right? This is a picture of Christ. That's all, all you need to know. There's a whole chapter in the book of Hebrews devoted to this order of Melchizedek. And basically the point is that Melchizedek is a picture of Christ. Look at the end of this here, verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. You see, the Messiah is coming in violent victory. This is speaking of uh, what we know now as the second coming of Christ, right? It's akin to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 9 where Daniel kind of sees uh, these kingdoms, right? The four kingdoms, and then there's this rock that kind of comes and smashes it. If you haven't read it, go read it. It's quite fascinating stuff. Uh, you get this rock that comes and kind of smashes the kingdoms, right? And the, the rock is the coming rule and judgment of Christ over the whole earth, right? The rock grows to fill the whole earth there in Daniel 7. It's a picture of judgment and wrath. Revelation speaks about the coming wrath of God quite a bit because there is quite a bit of wrath coming. Which kind of leaves Christians in this kind of weird spot in our day and age. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Christians are often embarrassed by the wrath of God. You ever, like, you ever notice, like, well, yeah, he, did, he wasn't really angry. No, no, no. We have, we, we have two options in front of us when understanding the wrath of God. 
number one, we can be embarrassed and we can try to make excuses for it, or we can warn people that it's actually coming. It is coming, and it's entirely right. You see, God is righteous in actually judging you and I. Like, he has the authority over us to do that. Therefore, our response should not be one of, well, he didn't really mean it. Our response should be like, no, he, he, he meant it more than you think he did. Therefore, our response should be repentance. Right? So, so you say, okay, well, what, what's the point in all this, pastor? Let's... To understand Psalm 110 properly is to understand Psalm 110 as speaking of the coming Messiah, the promise of the coming anointed one, the promise of the coming Christ. Now, 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 why do you say all that? Because this psalm is a favorite of the New Testament. Like I said, it's mentioned or alluded to nearly 33 times, more than any other psalm in the New Testament. And Jesus uses this psalm to prove who he is. You see, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Like, go back to Mark chapter 12. Flip back over there. Notice what he does. Because he quotes uh, verse 1 there, the Lord said to my Lord. Jesus' whole point is to kind of drive out their underlying preconceptions of what the coming Messiah would look like, what he would be doing. But it's all based upon like kind of one word that Jesus, how Jesus reads the Old Testament. He said, the Lord said to my Lord, right? He builds this argument of like, how can, how can the coming Messiah both be the Lord of David and the son of David? Like that's, that's his whole point of pointing this out to the Jewish folks. His whole point is that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one who has come. That's the point of the text. But notice this. Two quick things in closing here. Notice the promises authority here. Look what Jesus says. He says, this psalm was written by David. He attributes this psalm to David. Now, one of the interesting things about modern scholarship is that they actually don't attribute this psalm to David. You see, what they do is they, 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 they attempt to be unbiased. But that can be problematic because they forget what bias actually means. They would look at this and say, okay, let's see what we can know from this psalm using the tools that we have. But then you come up and you say to these scholars, didn't Jesus say, David said? To which they would reply, well, my scholarship doesn't allow me to do that because that would be bringing to the text a bias which the text does not offer up. Understand that this is not being unbiased. Right? There's a lot of conversation in our day right, age about understanding uh, implicit bias and explicit bias and, and being able to recognize that. Understand, under, approaching the scriptures in this way is not being unbiased, Christian. It's simply being unbelieving. You see, in an attempt to be unbiased, they actually are being biased in the other direction. Bart Erdman, I don't know if you've read anything about him, uh, he would actually say that if a historian found proof or evidence of the resurrection that even then they should still conclude that the resurrection did not happen because a historian must hold to a view that miracles never happen. You see, this isn't unbiasedness. We approach the scriptures. It's simply blind faith 
and blind bias towards naturalism. You see, notice how Jesus studies the Bible. This is massive. This should open up your world in understanding the text and being able to uh, understand. What is, what is Jesus arguing here? He's arguing on the basis of the words that are in the text. So David said, uh, the Lord said to my Lord. He's, 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 trying to pit, he's trying to get them to see what the scriptures actually say. The entire argument that Jesus is making hinges on the ownership of the word my. Jesus said to, the Lord said to my Lord. But more than that, Jesus said that David says it in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit has guided David's writing. This is the traditional, historical, uh, evangelical understanding of the scriptures. That, 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 that they are inspired by the Lord. That they are wrote by God alone through the use of human beings. Right, this, is, this should be, like, this ties in, right? Now understand, this, this is not an isolated section uh, that Marsh is kind of throwing in here for us, right? What did we just talk about last week? It's about understanding how we approach the scriptures. You have all these examples of uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, and the Herodians all approaching the scriptures and uh, without faith that seeks understanding, right? And the whole point of last week's sermon was that the way that we approach the scriptures should be with faith that seeks understanding. Which we believe they're true. That's massively important. If you don't like fundamentally believe the scriptures are true, listen, you're going to have a hard time in your Christian walk. You're going to be constantly tripping over yourself or tripping over what seems to be a problem for God in the scriptures if you don't start with the fact that they're actually true. Which is, by the way, the way Jesus viewed them. It's fundamentally, categorically true. Now listen, I love apologetics. I love philosophy, reasoning, argumentation, uh, a premise combined with another premise that logically leads to a conclusion. But here's the thing. You could actually come to prove that Christianity is true without believing the Bible is inspired by God. Like you could could prove from history uh, that, that obviously something happened in that empty tomb and not actually believe the scriptures are true. You could show that Christ resurrected with only using the Bible as a historical book and not as an inspired book. But if you have come to faith through apologetics or philosophy, then my, my, my point is that because you believe in this Jesus, you should now believe in the Bible which Jesus loved. R.C. Sproul used to say that he believed the Bible because he believed Jesus. He believed the Bible because he believed Jesus. Now, if you have the Lordship of Christ, you understand that it's Christ who reigns supremely. And he is who the Bible says he is in all of his glory. Then you should believe the things that the Bible says are inspired of God. Because it is what Jesus believed and proclaimed. Like As a Christian, you should believe the Bible. You should just believe the scriptures. You say, why are you spending all this time? Of course we believe. Because if we don't, what happens is as we interact with the world around us, we may be tempted to be swayed from what does the text actually say. We need to categorically, like in your gut, believe them to be true. Not blind faith. If you love Jesus, love the book you love. But you may, let me, let me, let me close up shop here. Why does Jesus not make this clear? Anybody ever wrestle with a text like that? Why did like, you know, no one ever answers the question. You just get this, the crowd who seemed to enjoy what he was teaching. But, but why does Jesus not become 
Why is it just not more clear? Why didn't you just say, I am the Messiah? Why do you have to do all this thing with David in Psalm 110? The reason is because the clearer Jesus becomes, the more persecution will arise. The more persecution will arise, with the, the clearer Jesus becomes. Now, you may be thinking, well, like Jesus, you know, did Jesus actually believe he was God in the flesh? Well, we'll flip over to the end of the story, Mark chapter 14, which we'll get here in a few weeks, but let me just show you. The, the clearer Jesus becomes, the more persecution will arise. Look at verse 61 of chapter 14. <clears throat> but he remained silent. This is Jesus uh, being interrogated by the high priest, by the, uh, the Sanhedrin. He remained silent and made no answer. Verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Now, some of your translations may have, You have said it true or you have said so, uh, simply know that the, what, what's actually happening here in the language uh, of the Greek is what's happening is he's saying, like, not only is what I've said true, but, but realize that you've also said it as well. That's what he's saying. He says, I am. You've said it to be true. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And notice the high priest's reaction in verse 30, 30, 63. The high priest tore his garment and said, what further witnesses do we need you have heard his blasphemy what is your decision and look at it verse 64 they all condemned him as deserving death you see what happens when jesus becomes crystal clear is they kill him that's what happens there's a little, little application here for you sometimes it's good to not answer questions clearly sometimes it's good to not answer questions clearly. There are times when you should not be clear. Not because you are ashamed of the answer, but because you realize that there is a trap being laid for you. You see, as Christians, we should understand that uh, the way we interact with people is not just what we say, but it's, 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 it's how we say it, yes, but it's also understanding and just being uh, aware of what's happening around us, right? So that Christ would actually say in the scriptures that, that we are to be wise, right? Gentle as dove, wise as servant, right? That's what he's, he's saying that, like, like, understand where you are, right? So, like, let's say you're um, working in fast food. I used to work in fast food, and, and you're trying to share the gospel. Uh, and someone says, wait, you think I'm going to hell? What should your response be? Yep. Maybe, maybe. I'm not saying that, because the answer is yes, we, we, we fundamentally believe that. But the answer might not be like, well, like, I, I want you to not go to hell, right? You see, that's what Jesus is doing here. That's why, that's why he veiled the promise here. So what's the conclusion? The conclusion is the way we approach the scriptures matters. There's no one who approaches this book with an unbiased view. The question is not, can we remove our biases before we engage with this book, but rather the question is, are our biases true? You see, Jesus is fundamentally causing his listeners to engage in what they say they believe. He's having them examine what they think and what they believe to be true in light of what the scriptures actually say. So Christians, in all of your Bible studies, in all of your scripture memorization, in all of your devotions, 
We do not approach this book as if it is merely another historical artifact, but rather we approach it as the living word of our God. With a solid understanding of what they say is actually true. And how do we know, this is important, how do we know if our interpretation of the scripture is actually true? Like last night I was talking with an older friend, older gentleman who said, uh, well, well, I have the scriptures and I have a direct line to God. What is it, what is, the, what is the bumper rail that God has set up in order to keep us within orthodoxy, within to keep us in what is actually true? Like how do we not spin off into some cult-like thing? The answer is the church. It's in the church. Our lives should be lived in the church. Our understanding of who God is and how God uh, works in society and moves and has his being is through the church. There is no such thing as the Rambo Christian. Church, we should always, we should approach the way we do church, not with a blind faith in the way things have always been done. Therefore, it's right. But also not with an overthrowing, burn it all to the ground mentality. Rather, we should be constantly examining our life in community together through the lens of what Scripture actually says. Unbeliever, skeptic, this whole thing might actually be a scam person. I would say look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and see if you find in him any faults. See if you can try and pin him down in another theological argument. Engage with this Jesus. Wrestle with him. See if you find anything in him lacking. And at the end of your wrestling, when you find no fault, when you find that he is not lacking, when you find grace and mercy and healing and love, run to him. Run to him. Run to him. Run to him who is both the son of David and also David's Lord. And to all of us, let us hear Jesus like that great crowd of people who heard him that day in the temple let us hear him gladly. Father God, we thank you this morning. Lord, we thank you that we no longer see with veiled eyes. Those of us who believe that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is David's son, and he is David's Lord, we rejoice. For it is you who have caused us to see. You have removed our blinded eyes and shown us the glorious light the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would continually be building our lives and grounding our lives in this truth. May we not move past this book. May we not try to live life without this book. But may we put all of our chips in on the table on this book, on this Jesus, this Lord, the Son of Man and Son of David. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.